Right, so good morning everyone and welcome to the Daily Power Parsha. It is great to see you all. So let's get everybody introduced and welcomed formally. Joy, welcome. Max, welcome. Sandrine, welcome. Stephanie, welcome. Good. I'm always without my cup. It's like in the next room over and I'm like, ah. Anyway, but it's, it's good to see it. It's good to see it representing. I love that. Okay, so we, we're starting a new portion. And, ooh, look at that. Hold on. Hold on. People are listening. People are, that's good. That's enough. <laughs> look at that. Look at that. My trusty assistants are helping me. Thank you, Nassim. Cheers. Look at that. I should have said, all we're missing is Mashiach. And then, boom, ferret in from the other room. We would have, like, the ultimate redemption and world peace. <laughs> oh, well, at least we have the IJA mug. All right. So let's, uh, let's jump in. We have a brand new portion this week and very exciting. A lot of, lot of really compelling conversation um, that we are going to have. And it's one of the more confounding portions, really, in commandments of the Torah, which you'll see in a moment what I'm talking about here. Okay, let me pull it up. Let me share my screen. And we are going to be off to the races. Here we go. Okay. Chuka, oh, double portion, loving this. Okay, this week we have Chukat and Balak, and this will finally, this double portion will finally get us back on track with Israel. I don't know if you, I don't know if you've, uh, you've been aware of this, but the last few weeks since the holiday of Shavuot, we've been off a week from the Jewish communities in Israel. So basically, the way it works is that we had two days of a holiday, two days of Shavuot, they had only one day. So they had their holiday on Friday and we had it on Friday and Shabbat. So in Israel, Shavuot was on Friday, Shabbat was already normal, in other words, not a holiday, so they read the next Torah portion, the weekly Torah portion. So they got a kickstart on that, but we in the diaspora outside of Israel, so we have a two-day holiday. Shavuot is two days. So it's Friday and Saturday, which means that Saturday, Shabbat, we didn't read the normal Torah portion. We read a special holiday reading. So we only started the week later. Whatever. Either way, we've been off by a week for the last month or so. So right now, we're finally reconciling this. This week, um, in Israel, they're reading just Balak. And in the diaspora, we're reading Chukat and Balak by next week. Will be, will be perfectly synced. So this is the week in which we have a double reading to get, us, uh, to get us all connected. So this is a week number one of unity, or I guess what I would call junity. Now, basically uniting communities in the diaspora and in Israel and getting everyone on the same page, the same Torah portion. At least the second one will be the same for this week. So that being said, we have so much to talk about in this double portion. So let's start off with the opening commandment. And I realized also that my screen needs to be enlarged to make it more readable. Here we go. Okay, I am going to do some reading. Please follow along. Numbers chapter 19, verse number 1. So the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, This is the statute of the Torah, which the Lord commanded. So in other words, of all the mitzvot, this is called Zot Chukat HaTorah. This is the statute of the Torah. 
Which one is it? I'm going to give you the spoiler alert. It's about the red heifer. So speak to the children of Israel and have them take for you a perfectly red, unblemished cow, which, upon which no yoke was laid. So it can't have been a cow that's been worked. This has to be a fresh cow, fresh from the hopper, whatever the hopper means, right? Um, or out of the hopper, whatever, unworked, unyoked, and it has to be perfectly red without any blemishes, any types of uh, physical ailments or damages, perfectly red. In fact, it says in Jewish law that in order to have the red heifer, it cannot have two black hairs, for example. The moment it has two hairs that are, a different, that are, that are black instead of red, it becomes disqualified. So just so you know, it has to be perfectly red. What happens with the cow? What happens with this red heifer? Torah continues. Give it to Elazar the Kohen, one of the sons of Aaron, and he shall take it outside the camp and slaughter it. He should then take the blood with his finger, sprinkle it toward the front of the tent of the meeting, tent of meeting seven times. The cow shall then be burned in his presence, its hide, its flesh, its blood, with its dung, he shall burn it. So basically, this is like a burnt offering. You, you slaughter the animal, and then it is primarily burnt. And then the Kohen shall take a piece of cedar wood, cedar wood hyssop, and crimson wool, so we have wood and wool, all right, and cast them into the burning of the cow. Very elaborate process here, but it continues. The Kohen shall wash his garments and bathe his flesh in water. And then he may enter the camp, and the Kohen shall be unclean until evening. Okay, let's skip that. Okay, let's continue. Uh, verse number nine. A ritually clean person shall gather the cow's ashes and of the wood and the wool and the hyssop, okay? So gather those ashes and place them outside the camp in a clean place. And it shall be as a keepsake for the congregation of the children of Israel for sprinkling water used for cleansing. So what do you use it for? Here we go. Verse 11. Anyone touching the corpse of a human soul shall become unclean for seven days. So if you come in contact with human death, so that you become unclean for seven days, ritually impure. On the third and seventh days, he shall cleanse himself with it so that he can become clean, which means with this mixture. But if he does not sprinkle himself with it on the third and seventh days, he shall not become clean. Let's continue. I'm skipping a little bit. Which is the verse that I'm looking for? Mayim Chayim El Kali. Here it is. Yeah, 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 yeah. Basically, look. Look, look, look at verse 17. They shall take for that unclean person, the one who became unclean by coming in contact with human death, from the ashes of the burnt purification offering, and it shall be placed in a vessel filled with spring water. And that is what is being um, sprinkled on the person who became unclean. So a ritually clean person, verse 18, shall take the hyssop and dip it into the water and sprinkle it on the tent and on the vessels on, and all the people who were in it on, and on anyone who touched the bone, the slain person, the corpse, or the grave. And it's done on the third day and on the seventh day. Okay, so now let me tell you what's going on. 
Now we read more or less the, the verses. Let's explore. Basically, what we're dealing with is a case of ritual impurity. And a ritual impurity that is the most severe case of ritual impurity coming in contact with death. Many forms of ritual impurity and many scenarios that could render a person impure, which we've discussed many in the weeks and months up until now. But here we have what we would call the most severe form of impurity coming in contact with human death. And that renders one, on, one in a state of impurity for a full seven days, a full week. And the only way to become pure, once again, ritually pure, is by undergoing a process that involves the ashes of the red heifer. This is known in Hebrew as the para aduma. Para means a cow. And aduma is red. So red cow. It's the red cow. The red heifer. So what do you do? We read some of the verses inside. You take the red heifer, the red cow, upon which no yoke was laid, never worked a day in its life, unblemished, perfectly red. You take the cow, you slaughter it, you burn parts of it, you mix it with some other items, then you take the ashes of the red heifer, you mix it into, you put it into, you sprinkle these ashes on top of the water that's held in a, in a, in a vessel, so you have a pure vessel with water, with pure water, and you sprinkle the ashes on top, or you, you, you take the ashes, you put them on top of the water, and then from this mixture, this ash-water mixture, you sprinkle on the person who became impure on day number three and day number seven of their quarantine. I don't know if it was a quarantine, but whatever, of their ritual impurity. And then after seven days... Hold on. Um, I think the Torah says there's another piece to it. Yeah. Um, on the seventh day, he shall wash his clothes and bathe, bathe in water, and he shall become ritually clean in the evening. So you still need to wash the clothes and go to the mikvah, to the ritual, um, uh, uh, the, the purification bath, if you will, and then you become ritually pure. Okay. So, again... The only way to become pure, purified from a, from a state of ritual impurity of coming in contact with human death is this red heifer. And it's a very mysterious ritual. It's very bizarre. In, in, in fact, if you're wondering, like, what's going on here? You take, you need a red heifer. You have to slaughter it, burn it with these other things, mix the ashes into water in a pure earthenware vessel, and then sprinkle it on days number three and seven, and then the person has to go to mikvah and wash his clothes, and then it becomes pure. It sounds crazy. It sounds bizarre. The answer is you're right. It is bizarre, which is why the Torah calls it, this is the decree or the statute of Torah. I forgot which word it used at the beginning of our portion in the translation. Let's see. Let's look at it inside. This is the statute of the Torah. And I asked before, why is this the statute of the Torah? There are 613 statutes. So what does it mean, this is the statute? So the Hebrew word for statute is chukat, which is, which is a form of the word chok. Chok is a decree. It's a statute. It's an ordinance. It's God saying, this is what I want because I want it. In fact, there are three different types of mitzvot. Chukim. Edus, 
sorry, Edim and Mishpatim. There are Chukim. Let's start from the bottom, actually. Mishpatim. Mishpatim are the mitzvot that make sense, logically. Like, do not kill, do not steal, um, love your fellows yourself. Basic, rational mitzvot, those are mishpatim. In fact, the Talmud says those are the types of mitzvot that even if we never got Torah, humanity would have probably evolved to figure these things out on our own. So basic laws of decency. So the mitzvot that govern basic, decent laws, those are called mishpatim. Then you have the laws that are called edus. I said edim before, it's edus. Edus. Edus are the mitzvot that are called testimonials. Those are the symbolic mitzvot, like Shabbat. We keep Shabbat because God created the world in six days and rested on the seventh, so we do the same. We observe Passover because of the Exodus, so we observe Passover, have a Seder, eat matzah. So these are the kinds of mitzvot that we wouldn't have figured out on our own. Like, we wouldn't have necessarily come up with Shabbat, or Rosh Hashanah, or Yom Kippur, or Passover, right? We might not have figured it out on our own, but once we got it, it makes sense, right? Once we have the mitzvah, makes sense. I mean, Lahavdil in, in America, we have Columbus Day. I don't know what, right? We have um, Memorial Day. We have Labor Day. We have all sorts of commemorations. So, if you're not part of that culture, if it didn't happen, then maybe you wouldn't have figured it out on your own. But once you have it, it makes sense. So again, Lahavdal, I'm not comparing, obviously, because Jewish holidays are, are, are so much, I mean, in my opinion, so much richer and more meaningful and, and, and spiritual, granted. But it makes sense that, that a culture would have holidays that celebrate its culture. So we have Shabbat. We have Rosh Hashanah, we have Yom Kippur, we have Sukkot, we have Passover, we have Shavuot. Different holidays that celebrate different major events in Jewish history and really in world history as well. So, so far, what do we have? Mishpatim, which we would call the logical laws or rational law. Edus, which are testimonials, mitzvot that symbolize, stand for, or symbolic for something else. So, they're not... We wouldn't have initiated it, but once we have it, they make sense. But then, then there's the third category of mitzvot. Chukim. Chukim are those mitzvot that even after we got them, and even after we got all the details, and even after you study it, they still don't make any sense. Right? No matter how much you study it, still can't figure it out. It's like, why? That, that makes no sense. So in general, all the laws of ritual purity are in that category. All the laws of ritual purity, if you touch this, you become impure, and if you touch that, you become impure, and you go into a ritual bath to become purified again. All of that is a chok. It's all decree. When we say decree, what we mean is it's a super rational decree. God says, this is my decree. It is what it is. Now, you and I can still find some sort of rationale, but ultimately, it's not a logical thing. One classic example of this the laws of kosher. People try to give all the time. I've done it in classes. We give rationale kosher, the reason, the symbolism. Ultimately, it's a chok. God said, eat this, don't eat that. That's it. C can you find a reason as well? 
yeah, but it's not a logical thing. It's not like people would come to kosher on their own and it's logical. And it's not like it's a symbolic or testimonial for a big event either. So it's not category one or category two. It's a category three mitzvah, a chok, super rational decree. God says, um, kosher milk, you can have. Kosher meat, you can have. But don't mix the two, to de- don't mix the two together. Why not? Why not? If this is kosher and that's kosher, so what could be wrong if I, if they fabrang together, right? What's wrong if they commingle, and then I enjoy it in that commingled space? What happens if I remove the quarantine? Is it really like what's going to happen with the with the with the milk and the meat? And, and trust me, and I, I've given classes explaining the symbolism and the deeper meanings. Fine. But at its core, it's a, it's an, it's a super rational mitzvah. I'm not going to say it's illogical. That sounds like it's beneath reason. It's, it transcends reason. It transcends rationale. God says, this is what I want, and that's it. So keep your milk and your meat separate. Eat this animal, not that animal. Slaughter it in a certain way, and if you miss doing it correctly, you can't eat it. This part of the meat you should eat, that part you shouldn't eat. Right? The, the laws of kosher are not logical. You, you can find symbolism, but it's not a logical law. The same thing is true with not wearing wool and linen, which I think we had before. Right? Don't wear a garment interwoven of wool and linen. Why not? The fashion police are going to come and, uh, and, and get all offended. No. It's a super rational law. Right? Don't crossbreed plants. Don't don't blend two different seeds together. Why not? Super rational law. But the Torah says here, Zot Chukata Torah, of all the super rational laws, you will not find one that is more super rational than the red heifer. Of all of the ones that we just discussed, you know what the, 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 the poster child of Chukim, of a Chok is? Like the one mitzvah that stands for super rational, you're not going to figure it out, it's just because God said, that is the red heifer. The red heifer is the one that stands as, you know, like a barber shop. You know, like different stores have different things hanging in the window. So like a butcher shop might have like dried meats. And the pizza shop might have a slice of pizza, you know, picture. A barber shop has that twirly thing. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about? That, that red and blue, white thing, whatever, or whatever color, or red and white. Yeah, and, and what about uh, the, the chukim, the super rational laws? What's in its window, so to speak? It's the part, it's a red heifer. The red heifer is like, you take a red, it has to be a red heifer. You take the red heifer, you slaughter it, you burn it, you take its ashes, mix it with water, sprinkle it on, on somebody who became, came in contact with, with a dead body on the third and seventh days, and that's what does it? That's how they get purified? That makes sense? Even mikvah, you can have a better, uh, uh, somewhat of an understanding. Yeah, you immerse in water, it surrounds you, it's like a rebirth, a renewal, it's, it's a surrender. You have some sort of rationale behind it. But the red heifer, King Solomon said about this mitzvah, that I was able to find the rationales for all of the mitzvot, but this one, nothing. 
We know King Solomon was, is considered to be the wisest of all men. King Solomon, right? The great and wise King Solomon. And he said about the red heifer, this one's got me stumped. I have no idea. This one's got me stumped. And yet today, I'm going to share with you some ideas. Yep, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to share with you some layers of meaning and significance to this super rational mitzvah. But again, the first thing I want you to know is it's called Zot Chukat HaTorah. This is the decree or statute of the Torah. In other words, this is the super rational decree of Torah. You're not going to find anyone, any other one that's, that's more. And yet there's still symbolism. Let me explain. Judaism and Kabbalah explain that life is a... Life is dynamic. And part of the, the, the dynamic nature of life is that there is a flow, a constant ebb and flow. Or in the language of cardiologists, right? Expansion and contraction. Picture the heart beating, right? Expands and contracts. Expands and contracts. Think about the lungs, right? Think about the lungs. Expanding and contracting. So think about your pulse, right? It beats. Right? The heartbeat. The beat of your pulse. The flow of your lungs. Breathing in and out. So there's a pulse to life. In Kabbalah, this is called Ratzo Vishov, which means running and retreating or returning. Running and returning. Expansion, contraction. Leaving, coming back. What does that mean? So life is meant to be a composite of both experiences. Yearning for something higher, but coming back to where we are. Which has really been the, the theme of the last two Torah portions, right? The spies, they didn't want to go anywhere. They wanted to stay where they were, right? And Korach said, everyone's holy. At its core, what we need, and the way Kabbalah explains, is we need a balance of both. You need the running, the escape, but also the return. So you need a Shabbat to escape, but then you have Monday through Friday, or Sunday through Friday, to get back to work. So we have the escape, the running, and the returning. We have our prayers in the morning in which we run to God and then we get back and we go to work and we deal with the mundane. So we have this duality of running and returning. Ratzo Vishov. This is what keeps people balanced, centered, and spiritual. It's moments of spiritual yearning and spiritual connection coupled with moments of groundedness. This is what makes us well-balanced. So, this is symbolized by the, by the ashes and the water of the red heifer solution or formula, right? So what did you do? You took a red heifer. Red is always symbolic of fire. And what did you do? You burnt the red heifer, again with fire. And you reduced it to ashes. But the ashes that you have are a product of the fire. Which direction does, does fire go, right? You could show me with your hands. Which direction does fire go? Up. Always up. Take a candle and turn it sideways. The flame is still going to go up. Fire always goes up. So the ashes of the red heifer 
sprinkling mixture. The ashes represent running away, running up, going up, transcendence. And you mix it with water. What's the nature of water? You know the nature of water. Water doesn't go up. If you have a leak in your cup, right? If there was a leak in my, God forbid, if there was a leak in my beautiful IJA mug, right? Trust me, the water's not going up. That's like outer space the water goes up. Welcome to the world of gravity. The water's going to go down. That's the nature of water. So fire goes up and water goes down. So in the red heifer mixture, what we have here is an escape and a grounding. We have the fire, the ashes escaping, and the water grounding. And that is mixed on the person who has come in contact with death. Because the message is a powerful message. Coming in contact with death, maybe losing a loved one, but any contact with death reminds us of the temporality, the temporal nature of life itself. And it reminds us of what lies beyond. And when a person is reminded of what lies beyond, they might be tempted to say, you know, maybe we should all be there. Maybe we should all return. Maybe this world is not as cracked up as it's meant to be. Maybe someone who's lost a loved one at some point in time has said to themselves, they want to be with that person that they lost. Right? Has that ever happened, that a person lost a loved one that they love real, uh, a lot, and they felt a little less connected to this world? Yeah. Out of love and devotion and care for the other. The message of the Torah is we have to couple the yearning of the fire, of the ashes, with the groundedness of the water. The message is that God needs us here right now to do an important job. And so despite how much we love and how much we yearn and how much we want to be, perhaps, with someone who has passed away, the reality is that God has a job for us right here. And so we need to balance the fire yearning with the water grounding. And in this way, we have that balance. It doesn't mean to, to completely eliminate that yearning. What it means is to balance the yearning. We have ashes and water. So you need the ashes, you need the water. And it's that balance that, uh, that brings us together. Another point that I want to mention regarding life and loss, life, death, and loss, is that for many, for many, and really, it's really along the same lines, um, loss can be very, very devastating. And it's like that blackness of the ashes where life might, have, might lose its, its, its flavor, might lose its, um, its joy. And the reality is the message of the ashes mixed with the water is, water, ashes is a symbol of death, right? Something destroyed, something gone. Water is a symbol of life. I'm giving you another, another symbolism here, right? Not up and down, but a little bit different. Ashes symbolizes destruction or death. Water symbolizes life. Water is a symbol of life. So when you mix the ashes with the water, the message is that even after encountering death, oh, experiencing the loss of a loved one, that can very often be profoundly devastating, 
The Torah tells us at some point, when a person's ready, we have to resume to put the ashes, mix it together with the water. You have to resume life and live once again. And for everybody, it's, it, takes a, it takes a different amount of time. Some people get back, resume, so to speak, life more quickly. Some, it takes longer. I would say on some level, the loss is never fully healed, right? Can't heal that loss, can't fill that space. But on some level, notwithstanding that, life still moves on. And the Torah is telling us this instruction that even after the ashes, you got to mix it with water. At some point, it's important to mix it together with the water and live on. Because that's, that's, that's what we're here for, to live on. Even when it seems so difficult and even impossible. Um, so that's a little bit about the red heifer. Again, these are not explanations for the red heifer. It remains ultimately a, a super rational decree, something that God said, this is the process and we do it. But these are some ideas that are, that are um, discussed in relation to the red heifer, some things that we might take and, and personalize and internalize. One other interesting wrinkle in the red heifer, another paradox, is that the people who prepare the red heifer become impure. You might have noticed that in the narrative. The people burning, slaughtering the cow, burning the cow, the people mixing it with the water, they actually become impure. Not seven days requiring a red heifer. That would be like a never-ending cycle. Like if, if in the process of preparing the red heifer, you needed a red heifer, that would be a self-fulfilling, like a, 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 an infinite mirror type thing. No. The person preparing the red heifer mixture became impure for like a day and all they needed was the mikvah, the regular mikvah ritual bath. They didn't need a red heifer. But it's interesting that in the process of preparing the purification mixture, the ones involved in that process became impure. The Rebbe spoke about this. And the Rebbe said the message is sometimes in helping someone else out, it costs you a bit. You take a hit. On some level, whether it costs you money, costs you time, or on some level, it, it, it takes something out of you. It, um, psycho mentally, emotionally, spiritually. Simple example. If you spend time helping someone else out, right? You spend three hours helping someone. Those are three less hours that you could have used for your own spiritual growth. So... A person might say, you know, I, I'd rather tend to my own needs. I don't, I don't necessarily want to, you know, help someone else out. The Torah says no. It's a mitzvah to help someone, not when there's no cost to you, but even when there's a cost to you, even when it's going to make you spiritually impure. And who are the people preparing it? The Kohen, the Kohanim, who they were told to stay in a state of, of purity. And yet they were told here in this case, some was, someone is in a severe state of need. You have to be there for them. You have to be there for them and help them get to that state of purity, even if and even when you're going to become impure in the process. That is the extent of the sacrifice that the Kohanim were called upon. And that is the same extent of sacrifice that you and I are called on as well to do. We're not meant to be there for someone else only when it's cost-free, when it doesn't cost us anything, when it's easy, even when it's difficult, 
even when it's going to cost us something, even when it's going to take us down a notch or two, we still have to be there for the other person. And as the Rebbe says, the reality is that ultimately, you know, if you look at the long game, we're never shortchanged or harmed by helping someone else out. There's always a greater blessing that comes from it. The Rebbe once said, if you're teaching Torah to someone else, and because of that, you have less time to study Torah yourself, God will bless you that in the shorter amount of time that you have for your own personal Torah study, God will magnify the amount of Torah that you can study in that small amount of time, and you're not going to lose out on anything. So let's say, let's use my three-hour, one-hour. Let's say instead of studying three hours, now you can only study one hour. Okay? God will make sure that your Torah study in that one hour will be tripled in magnitude to compensate for the less amount of time that you have. So in the end, we never truly lose. But even if we think we are in helping someone else out, but even if we think we are, we should still do it. That is another message of the Paraduma, the red heifer. Even when you become impure, someone else needs it, you got to do it. They need that purification, you got to do it. You got to help them out, even if it's going to cost you something. All right, so I'm going to summarize the messages. We're just getting started. We'll continue tomorrow. So we have, I think, three or four messages. Message number one. Um, no, let's just do three messages. Message number one is life is an amalgam. Life is a composite. Life is a um, hybrid of expansion and contraction, of running and returning. We have to have moments of inspiration, but also practical moments. We can't live with our heads in the clouds. Well, let me say, state, it, state it differently. Our feet should always be on the ground, and our heads should always be turned toward above. So we should have both. Looking up, but also being grounded below. That's message number one. Message number two. After loss, it could be very difficult to resume, to resume life once again. And the Torah calls upon us to mix the ashes with the water. Even after experience loss or heartbreak or disappointment, we have to get back and keep on moving. And there's no judgment for how long that takes or how that process goes. But the Torah's point is ultimately healing comes when we're able to mix the ashes of death with the waters of life. That's point number two. And point number three is prepare the red heifer formula to help someone else out, even though in the process you might yourself become impure. Because we have to be there for others, even if it's even at a certain personal cost. And with that, we will all be blessed. Please God, we should be blessed with no pain, no loss, only health and happiness for us and our loved ones and for all of us. And let us say, Amen. That concludes today's uh, daily Power Parsha. Hope you enjoyed the messages from this super rational discussion. Hopefully we had some rational ideas and some inspiring messages as well. Any, any comments, questions, thoughts? I have a question. Go for it. Uh, in, in my Rashi on the second puzzle, uh, it says, um, it is a creep from before me. Uh, you do not have the right to reflect upon it. Right. So, Good, excellent question. My understanding, right, Mark is saying, God is saying, this is my decree, don't even, don't even think about it. 
Just do it because I said it. Excellent question. My understanding of the Ein Rishus Lahar Acharav, they have no permission to think about it, means that we shouldn't question it to the point that we're not going to do it until it makes sense. Right? In other words, it means don't hold yourself back from doing it until it makes rational sense. Do it anyway. Are you then allowed to assign or attribute some significance? Yes. And by the way, the only reason why I say yes, you're allowed to, is because all the commentaries do it. Even after citing Solomon and after citing how super rational it is, everyone says, well, maybe, you know, we could say that it symbolizes X, Y, and Z. So I'm just, I'm just riding on the shoulders of giants here. Based on that, I would say that the meaning of that Rashi, or that, uh, I think it's probably from the measures of the Talmud originally, that statement means don't question it logically to the point that you're going to say, well, it doesn't make sense, I'm not doing it. Don't go that far. Accept it, you know, unconditionally. After you've accepted, are you allowed to also give a takeaway? Sure. That's what our sages are doing. By the way, I will tell you, it's important to, do, it's important to understand what we're doing when it comes to the Torah and mitzvot. It's also important sometimes to surrender, to say, I don't have any idea, I don't know why I'm doing this. It's like in a relationship, right? If you know, if you appreciate what the other person loves or wants or likes, it's, it, it helps you do that for them because you get it. But sometimes it's good to do something for the other that you can't relate to. Somebody says, yeah, I like this. You have no idea why they like it, but they like it. All right, so that's it. You like it, you like it. That's, that's also a good thing, right? It, it means I love you so much or I respect you so much that I don't need to question. You know what the worst thing is? When somebody says, um, I like this, and you say, why do you like that? Uh, that's crazy. Why do you like that? You question their likes. I, it's it's uh, question. I mean, if, if a taivas can cash, you can't ask a question on a on a desire, right? Somebody likes vanilla, vanilla ice cream or chocolate ice cream. Why do you like vanilla, not chocolate? I don't know. Who knows? Why do you like uh, sushi as opposed to steak? It's what I like. Right? Somebody says, your, your, your significant other, somebody says, uh, can we go to this restaurant? You're like, why do you like that food? <laughs> right? It's their birthday. Just go with them. I mean, just go with the flow here. Right? You'll figure it out. So God says, I want you to do a, a red heifer. Why do you want the red heifer? I think that's what Rashi is saying. Don't be like, don't get up all in God's, you know, why do you like that? Well, that's crazy. First thing is, no problem. You want the red heifer? You'll get your red heifer. We're going to do the red heifer. After, now, once that's settled, now it's like, okay, so what can I learn from it? But that's a different experience than, than questioning it. So we're not questioning it as much as we're trying to extract layers or some, some elements of inspiration, which is always good. But anyway, it's good, it's good to know and it's also good to not know. It's good, it's good to have both. It's like the, all right, we'll see you guys tomorrow. We got more to talk about. Daily Power Parsha, tonight Yiddish, tomorrow night Life After Life. We'll see you guys soon. Take care, everyone. Be well. Bye, everyone. <laughs>